Hey folks, this is Will Ashton here. I just wanted to give you a heads up that we had some technical issues recording this special bonus episode of The Fanatic. We apologize for the audio not being on par with our previous episodes, but I hope you're still able to enjoy the conversation all the same. I personally feel it's one of my favorites in recent months, so I hope you enjoy and thank you for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Cinemaholics. I'm your usual co-host, Will Ashton, and I'm joined once again by one of our regular and good friends. It's uh, Corey Woodruff. How you doing, man? I am doing well, Will. It's good to uh, be back in the Cinemaholic world and to be discussing uh, one of the year's absolute best films coming up. <laughs> if only, right? Um, yeah, seriously. Yeah, so before we get too ahead of ourselves, I guess we should just say right off the bat... What we're doing is a bonus episode about a film called The Fanatic. And usually when we do like these indie discussions, it's about films of some note that, uh, you know, like generate a lot of acclaim or notice. Um, earlier this year, they did one on Wild Rose. We did one on Midsommar, uh, a couple others. Um, we did Corey, us, we did one for Under Silver Lake, uh, back in April or May. Um, but yeah, this time around, we're doing one for the fanatic and that film directed by one, the one and the only Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit fame is certainly not, uh, not film that will be on anyone's top 10 list. I imagine, um, probably on a few worst lists, uh, <laughs> but it's just a film that, uh, Corey, we've been talking about this for, I think at least six months, right? Yeah. Ever since the pictures came out of what Travolta's costume yeah. looked like on this, it was just, it really was all downhill from there. Right. Back when the film was called Moose and all we knew was that it was going to be the uh, uh, long awaited team up of John Travolta and Fred mm-hmm. Durst. Um, yeah, it just it was one of those films where it's like, no matter what, this is going to be a film to discuss good or bad. And uh, obviously, as our conversation is alluding to, this film is not very good at all. Um, but yeah, before we get too far ahead, uh, I'm going to let Corey kind of explain to best visibility and I'll help, of course, uh, what's going up with our good friend Moose. Tell us the plot of the fanatic. Well, um, what is there to say about Mm -hmm. the fanatic? Um, this movie to me is if you've seen the meme on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere on the internet, you find your meme sources, um, galaxy brain, um, (laughs) This is the galaxy-brained version of the fan-celebrity relationship conversation that has kind of gotten a little stale, but it's been re- kind of rejuvenated in this era of kind of fan entitlement and people feeling like creators owe them something with their work. And, yeah. you know, this phrase of, you know, my childhood was ruined because you mm-hmm. took creative liberties or something. And, you know, and then this almost goes beyond that into, like, what the fans and the celebrities do directly. It's almost like this movie was inspired by a terrible like altercation at like a, I don't know, like a Nebraska comic con or something like, I don't know. This is just the, to me, that's kind of the gist of where this is. And the movie stars John Travolta, who obviously is a legacy actor who has taken a weird dive into his career um, yeah, at this point. He's in the direct to DVD phase of his career. Um, yes. I guess now that, that would be the VOD phase because I guess direct DVD is a less common thing these days. Um, but yeah, um, 
it's he's kind of like at the phase that like Nicolas Cage was like two or three years ago where he didn't have like a man. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a Mandy right now. He doesn't have a Teen Titans go. He doesn't have a Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Like he doesn't have anything to kind of like at least somewhat balance out the crud. It's just basically miss after miss after miss. But he is swinging hard <laughs> with his misses. I mean, um, he swings so hard in this movie. He realizes he's not playing baseball. He's trying to actually play backgammon with someone. I mean, this is he's like playing the wrong sport. Yeah. Performance like and you look at it like he hasn't done anything like I know he did a movie with Ty West a few years ago that was apparently pretty good. Oh, yeah. The Valley of Violence, which I do like. I thought he was good in that. And that was probably the last role of his that I genuinely enjoyed. And that's the thing. Like, he hasn't really done anything that people have been like, oh, yeah, he was pretty good in that since the O.J. Simpson uh, FX series. Yeah. And even then, like, he's like the seventh or eighth best member of the cast. I mean, he's I, good. I, yeah, I thought he was a weak link, truth be told. Like, I thought. Interesting. He, I thought he was like on a different planet than everyone else in that cast. But I felt like it was very much like a Ryan Murphy kind of decision where a lot of times I haven't seen a lot of his shows. But when I do watch his shows or his movies, there's usually like at least like three dedicated performances one that's like pretty good then they have like one i don't want to say stunt casting but like some kind of like kind of out of left field choice and then the actor is just like making some choices and it's just like everyone else just kind of has to like do their best to work around that and that's just the vibe i kind of got from john travolta in um the people versus oj simpson it kind of worked because the character that john travolta was playing was kind of like a odd out of the box kind of person and so it, it it was pretty true to life in the sense that, like, his character was just kind of odd and bizarre. So he was mirroring that to enough to where it wasn't, like, totally out of left field. But it, it took a lot of getting used to to get a, your brain adjusted to his performance as opposed to everyone else's around that show. But I won't spend too much time talking about people versus O.J. Simpson. It's a good thing if you haven't watched it. I mean, I can't recommend that one enough, but it's I good, guess yeah. I... Oh, yeah. I mean, Courtney B. Vance and Sarah Paulson and Sterling K. Brown. But yeah, so The Fanatic. Um, very much not that wonderful FX series. <laughs> um, this is, it's also set in LA, I guess. Those are <laughs> the similarities to Volta and the setting. But basically, this movie is about a guy named Moose, who um, I guess the best way to describe this would be he's on the spectrum. Yeah. I mean, they don't say it outright, but I've I've seen an interview where John Travolta basically said he's on the spectrum. So for the sake of this conversation, we're just going to say that he's on the spectrum, that, or at least that's how John Travolta intended the character to be. But uh, we'll just we'll admit up front that it's not confirmed as far as the film is concerned. And I don't know if Fred Durst say anything one way or the other. No, I mean, he's he's definitely socially challenged, I think would be fair to say. I mean, just a guy that kind of, you know, you can tell kind of doesn't exactly kind of fit into normal crowds and, you know, obviously kind of has, has his quirks, but he's a guy that is a big movie fan, I guess is what you could say. And it's kind of mm-hmm. one of those, you know, guys that loves to go to prop shops and get autographs. He's very much like those people you see at the airport and pictures. If you're buying a movie autograph online and they post like a picture of the dude, signing the thing to verify that it's real and there's someone that's taking the autograph to sell it mm-hmm. he seems like one of those guys um yeah his his house is very nice for someone who does this type of career i mean he has like a built-in theater in his house mm-hmm. and 
like lots of like a popcorn machine and like he's, yeah. he's obviously got some financial means which i thought was interesting yeah um he dresses like ned flanders on vacation uh that's <laughs> that's, that's the only way to describe this thing and his haircut is like if someone was making fun of a bowl cut i mean it's just a, yeah i was gonna say he had a fight with a razor and the razor won <laughs> Yes, the razor won, and the razor like let him know that it won. I mean, like it rubbed it in its face. Yeah, like it's it's almost it's like those haircuts that baseball players give each other to haze. Oh, people. it's so funny because I was thinking of um that episode of of uh, The Simpsons where um <laughs> Mr. Burns is like a baseball team, and I forget which guy it is, but the guy with the mustache, and he keeps like trying to he keeps telling him to shave his sideburns. Yeah. which he's obviously talking about his mustache but he keeps saying sideburns and like at the end of the episode like he's like like the both sides of his head are like basically completely shaved and he's like <laughs> how many times do I have to tell you you have to shave your sideburns you're off the team <laughs> it, it looks like that haircut yeah it's like that. if someone kept telling moose to like cut his it's like if he took like a, a millimeter off of his bangs every day and like every day it's just like i'm gonna take somewhat of my bangs off but not quite so obviously he's a different fellow and um, he basically has this gigantic obsession with this actor named Hunter Dunbar. Mm-hmm. Now Hunter Dunbar is, I think the best way you could describe him would be like one of the dudes in the underworld movies. Like if you're going for okay. the Kate Beckinsale, like, series which i've never i've never seen those movies i've never really had much of it i've seen them on tv for like half a second and then i realized like this film blood wars um yeah uh that's not a good example i didn't love <laughs> these movies let's check for rise of the lichens the movie with the uh, trying to find the perfect type of actor it's, to describe. it's funny because i've seen every underworld movie and i cannot remember the subtitles and you've named three of them <laughs> <laughs> i think exactly right <laughs> Here we go. Perfect example. Scott Speedman. Okay. That is who this is. This is basically a movie about an autograph collector who is basically mildly obsessed to aggressively obsessed with the fictional equivalent of Scott Speedman, who yeah, was. I guess, yeah. Yeah. I, I, he's like, he was in the Underworld movies. He's kind of a genre actor. His career really hasn't done a lot that's why i just don't get about this film like not to get into criticisms too early Mm -hmm. but i genuinely do not know how famous hunter dunbar is supposed to be like i'm not supposed i'm not sure if he's like supposed to be like a b-level star if he's like a d-level star or c or if you like you say he's like kind of more like a bruce campbell kind of like famous in like the b c like b movie world i I genuinely don't know how famous this character is supposed to be because it kind of fluctuates because he lives like in a like well-off neighborhood but like he's doing book signings at like a hole in the wall comic book shop, so it's just like yeah, I don't. It seems like his movies are really old too. Like they're really not like things that are getting the kids going these days. Like, <laughs> and I think like I think there was more stuff with him that got cut, probably in favor of having more time screen time with Moose. But uh, like I said, I'll get into that in a little bit. Keep going. No, I mean <clears throat> there's too much to discuss with these okay. creative decisions. Um. There is like this whole thing where he like buys a vest and he's like this vest from this movie about vampire killers or something. And Moose is very happy about the vest, but it's like a film. Probably should also, 
Yeah, it's like a real expensive thing. And like the guy at the shop's like, ah, you can have it for put it on layaway, basically. Which I didn't know comic book shops did layaway. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's too. like kind of friends with him, so that was like yeah. that was more believable than eighty percent of the stuff in this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, the communal uh, business transactions at the comic book shop were actually pretty true to life if you were friends with the owner. But um, no, it's so basically he's also a street performer and we could talk more about oh, that yeah. later probably but let's just say that he also plays a character like the people on hollywood boulevard and tries to get donations or you know stuff for taking i mean pictures. i think that's his like main source of income it probably is maybe he makes bank doing that because he's got I don't a think really so. nice like <laughs> he must have like sued someone a long time ago or makes his money know. off of photographs like because he, mm-hmm. he's got means I mean, it's really hard to, like, be a street performer and then go home to your built-in theater. (laughs) I mean, it's just like, like, if this were a better film, like, like in The Big Lebowski, like, it's ever explicitly said how uh, The Big Lebowski has his means of income. But the movie itself is just so entertaining and well-made that you don't really think about these things. But because the fanatic raises a million and a half questions, you have to think about, like, so how how does this work? Like, how does he live... (laughs) in this apartment, this well-off apartment <laughs> in Los Angeles. Like, yeah, it, it just, it's, it's very baffling. Yeah. And like, there are moments where he'll be in his house and there's just popcorn sitting there. And it's like, does he just like pop popcorn for like a decoration mm-hmm. or like, we never see him eat the popcorn. I mean, he's very lucky to have like that set designer just always come into his house <laughs> before he comes home. Yeah, he just it's like he pays his neighbor to always be able to come in and pop popcorn because he wants to live like he's in the movie theater. This is basically like if Fred Durst imagined what nerds do. I mean, th- this is almost as embarrassing as like the set of The Big Bang Theory. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like, ah, this is a nerd's house. And it's just like, no, this is that, that's not how people usually who are upset right. with movies live. Like, but. No, this kind of becomes a bit misery-esque because Moose meets Dunbar at this like kind of rinky-dink signing at the comic book shop. And I guess Dunbar is in the middle of a divorce or has an ex-wife who he's mm-hmm. kind of arguing with. And he has and to go talk. And a kid. Yeah, he's got like a kid that we'll talk way more about later. But he figures out that he has to go do something. So he like, because this is only in the movies... He like has to get up right when it's Moose's turn, which I guess for Moose is just like the end of the world because this so apparently elusive actor. You would think that a person who does autographs by trade would have gotten this D-list horror actor by now, but um, he guess he has not heard of a Comic Con. I'm sure this dude probably makes his living off of doing events like that, but somehow serendipity did not fall to the wayside for him, and he like loses his chance to get his vest signed. So he like follows Dunbar into the alley and the classic, you know, in these movies with stalkers is like that. He is the Dunbar's ugly to Moose for like following him and trying to meddle in his business. And Moose is like, so they're trying to kiss his butt and Mm -hmm. it just goes really poorly. And it kind of sparks the rest of the film because Dunbar like kind of blows him off and leaves. And then Moose has kind of gotten that taste of, Oh, I've met my idols. Now I'm going to push even further. And then he has this, friend who kind of serves as also the narrator is like this celebrity photographer and she like shows him the, like a map of the stars on a phone which i'm sure i'm surprised this guy didn't know how to use it first because he like is obsessed with all of this but we'll be the me to discuss that 
And then he just begins to stalk him, and weird things happen, and that's the fanatic. This is just this, you know, overly aggrandized, like, meditation of the fan-celebrity, you know, relationship. And there's way more to discuss about what happens in this movie that probably would veer into spoiler territory. A film like this can be spoiled. But, yeah, no, I think it's just, it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah, no, I mean, it's a film that, it baffles any conventional explanation, but I think you did a pretty reasonable job of explaining it. Um, like you said, it seems to be like, I think the f- intent here, cause um, if you didn't mention it earlier, this is based on a true story where very loosely based on a true story where Fred Durst, I guess had some stalker fan, I think probably about like 10 or 20 years or 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, who was just like basically harassing him, like stalking his house and you know putting his family on edge and i guess that guy's mind churning of like well who could that be and like i I, i'm guessing his original intent like you said was like what's this line like when you're celebrity between like when you um offer yourself as a public persona to people and people feel like they can take advantage of that and basically be like your friend even though you've never met them like those boundaries what are those like can they be dangerous and a lot of good films have kind of explored that line. Like you said, Misery is a great example. Um, another film with Patton Oswalt called Big Fan has explored that pretty well. Um, there's also the camp comedy, which I think is also a big influence here, where uh, the character of Rupert Pumpkin is having having this like fixation on being a celebrity. And he you know, is trying very hard to make it as a celebrity himself to the point where he kidnaps uh, Jerry Lewis's uh, Johnny Carson-esque character. So we've seen versions of this type of film done well. And I think one of the weirder aspects of The Fanatic is that, with the exception of this um, one subplot involving a app that tracks celebrity houses, which I guess could have been explored a little bit more, and it isn't, um, as far as what the themes of the film are, uh, it really doesn't explore like anything modern or contemporary as far as like how social media also really blurs the lines with um celebrity culture and how um you know now like when celebrities are a brand themselves and they constantly have to put themselves out there um like how people can even get the bl- the lines blurred even more because this film kind of takes place in a vague like un nondescript time period where if it weren't for cell phones it could have been the seventies <laughs> basically like. Like, there's nothing really about it that's, like, true to now, but it's also not dated enough where it can feel like a period piece. It just kind of exists in its own kind of, like, world where, like, at any point, like, any scene could be the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, 2000s, 2010, you know, in the future, maybe. Uh, it, it, it It's very indescript about, or nondescript about what it, where it is and what it's trying to say. And I think that just comes down to, I have to assume that Fred Durst either had too many ideas for what he wanted this film to be or he just kind of got lost in the shuffle being that he is like i mean to begin with he's not like a super great filmmaker he's made two other films um the education of charlie banks and the long shots which those films aren't they're they're certainly leagues above this film but they're not really exceptional they're like they're kind of films you'd see like in a walmart bargain bin like they're fine <laughs> or you'll see them like on like or, or at least long shot you would see like on like tbs at like 2 p.m on thursday like it's fine it's cute but it's nothing like like never in a million years i think would you really associate it with the lead 
singer of Limp Bizkit. And I think either to his credit or his detriment, this feels more like what I think a person would expect from a film, un film de Fred Durst. In <laughs> uh, that you like, you like see his like drawings, like his, his like personality, his music comes out a little bit more here. Uh, at one point, inexplicably characters are listening to Limp Bizkit music. <laughs> um, and I, I want to say that that would, make it better even though like obviously i don't think limbiscuit is at all a good group i think they're terrible to to be perfectly blunt but you would think that having more character in his visual style and his just filmmaking style would make it a better or more distinct film but somehow it makes it more nondescript and even sloppier as a film would you agree with that i would his filmmaking style to me reminded me of like a trashy sundance movie from like 1998 like it's just or like this, 2007 or something yeah yeah it's just like it reminded me a little bit of the filmmaking in the movie crash which is not a good movie at all from what i've seen of it like i don't know why people like that movie so much but it's just i don't know it just feels so feels really ratty and it just feels really like self-important and i think that's what durst was trying to do i think he had this like I, I could see this movie being really a passion project for him where mm-hmm. he like poured everything he had into it but it's like there's also this movie has an ego. And I think that's really yeah. one of the big things about it that makes it really kind of bad is that mm-hmm. this movie really is kind of high on its own supply. And it's just so obsessed with like it feels like it's got a point and it's making that daggum point and that it's like got this darkness to it and this edginess mm-hmm. and that it's like an exclamation point of a film. And it's like you watch this and you're going to be stunned. And it's just like, no, I think that's why it swings to the fences so much as he's just bizarre interludes of like drawings that happen that are supposed to be freaky and Mm -hmm. in some other films i think they would have worked the way the style would have been and it's got this just really just over grandized music at first and this like voiceover about talking about how crappy la is and hollywood and it's just like yeah which doesn't fit the tone at all the rest of the film that narrative no not at all it's like he's trying to scorch earth and it's like he doesn't even have he has like a like a old pack of matches. It's like, buddy, you're not setting anything on fire. Yeah. Like there's no, there's nothing here. And it's like, you know, I, I admire aspects of this film that deal with kind of, I, I don't think it's all for not. Like, I do think that, you know, and we can probably talk about this more later, but the study it does of the, the Hollywood strip is kind of a horror zone where all these just really, ne'er-do-well people rip people off and it's like where dreams go to die and like it's just this is grubby autograph shops and cheesy tourist stuff like i've been to hollywood just over the summer and it was like that was a big moment for me was getting the truth shown to me that hollywood is just not this big glitzy wonderful place where you see the stars and you know on the walk or go see a movie at the at sigramans like it really is kind of a grubby you know place where you don't really even want to get out of your car because there's just so many people and it's just mm-hmm. really gross and I, I admired that like i thought that i've not really seen movies deal with that side of hollywood because i've always felt like the industry wants to kind of hide that and kind of leave that and you know when they do the oscars they shut the street down and they want it to be this kind of you know pinnacle zone of you know entertainment and there's jimmy kimmel and there's the el capitan and it's really this cool strip but uh, that's and that's to me that's the only thing that's good about it but I, I i did admire the scenes where moose was like 
well, not what he was actually doing his performing, but when he kind of like was walking around and it was kind of like almost like a location study with the way the film was balancing, like showing like, Hey, this is a really seedy area. And a lot of that gland that you think is there, you know, really isn't. And honestly, it probably is a good place for a movie like this. that's so trashy and defunct of quality to actually begin to kind of mine some of this and deal with it. Cause I think that sometimes trashy entertainment can bring certain truths to light, but I think that's the only thing this film does. that's even worth mentioning of being quality. Yeah. That's the thing, right? Cause it's like the film is at odds with itself as far as what the style and tone of it is. Like you said, there are often moments where it seems to be kind of hearkening to that seventies edge where it's like a very, gritty grimy uh character study film centered mm. on this eccentric character you know obviously reminiscent of taxi driver and like what drives a you know eccentric but decent hearted person over the edge into you know doing something completely despicable and there is something to that idea like i think the seeds are there for this concept to make it kind of interesting but the film is often at odds with itself in that there is this constant desire, either from John Travolta's performance or Fred Durst never really deciding what he wanted the tone to be, or because he just let Fred Durst or um, John Travolta get kind of go wild, whatever he wanted to do on set. But there's like this like kind of irreverence and campiness that kind of seeps in where like John Travolta just completely overtakes the film to the point where it seems like, it was going to be a more even handed look between him and Hunter Dunsbar. And like the first cut was, would have been like three hours long. And they're just like, well, we got to cut this down to 90 minutes. And it's like, well, just everything they cut was basically the Hunter Dunsbar stuff. And it's just like, they're left with mostly a movie about moose. And it's like, okay, like that's fine. I guess if you can do it well, but that just kind of muddles, like you're saying, like the point of the film or what the message is, mm-hmm. because it's never made explicitly clear either because they, they don't want to completely de- uh, demonize or champion Moose where we're supposed to land with this character. And mm-hmm. that could be fertile ground for, you know, thematic discussion in a, in a, a more, uh, I guess, well-rounded film. But um, in this film, it's like I genuinely don't know, like at the end of the film, without getting the spoilers, like was I supposed to be rooting for Moose? Was I supposed to be scared of Moose? Was I supposed to be like intrigued with his journey in like a way that I presume I'm going to hopefully be with like Walking Phoenix and Joker, where it's like you don't really like appreciate what he does, but you kind of like have this fascination with him and you like get the mechanics of his mind, even though he's like kind of an odd character. Um, like I don't like I genuinely don't know like where you're supposed to go with like like what your your thought process is supposed to be with this character. And subsequently, I also don't know if our other character Hunter Dunsbar is a character we're supposed to be like rooting for. If he's like, like a bit of an everyman or a common man in this situation, even though he's like the celebrity, like, I don't know if he's like the person we're, we're hoping gets out of it alive. We, I don't know if you were supposed to be like criticizing him for how he treats his fans. And like the moral of the story is like, Hey, you know, like treat your fans with respect. Like there's just so much complicated factors with this movie where like at every scene, seemingly it like changes its perspective or what it's trying to say that like by the end of it, I don't know if you felt this way, but it's just like, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know like what the takeaway was with the final scenes. Like, I, I don't really get like what the final like stamp 
uh, thesis was for Fred Durst. Like, it seems like he's trying to say seven different things at once, and every point he's trying to make is contradicting the last one. Yeah, it's an angry movie. It's a very angry, ugly movie, and I think that Durst, like... But it's angry in the way, like, it's, like, just kind of, like, points finger yeah. everywhere. It's just like, it's your fault, Aunt, your fault, Aunt, your fault, mm-hmm. Aunt. It's just like, it's like the ravings of a madman at some points. Yeah, and I really, like, I think I know what he wants Moose to be, and I find it to be very tacky and degrading. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, like, he wants Moose to be judged. I think he wants Moose to be looked down upon. Um, I think he's trying to see things from these. And again, like, I think this film is Durst manifested. I think that he's probably, you know, again, it's fame has hardships. And I feel like that, you know, no matter what your socioeconomic status is in life, that no matter your notoriety and getting the dream, I guess, of what Hollywood has to offer, that it does come with lots of challenges and struggles. And I empathize with that. And I'm sure that with a guy like Dirks, whose popularity peaked around the turn of the millennia and who's really not like at the forefront of the socia, you know, the, the kind of that social pop culture conversation that's going on right now. I mean, people don't listen to Limp Biscuit anymore. It's like he still has a fan base, though. Yeah. And I'm sure that this fan base that sticks around is a bit more obsessive. And I'm sure that he does go to a lot of these fan events and probably meet some weirdos of people that feel entitled, that feel like because they love him that they can do whatever the hell they want. And it's like, I'm and like you said, he's had to deal with this before. So there's obviously some personal stake here of him trying to like deal with, okay, I'm pissed. I hate these people that are like this. I try to understand that, I have a lot of what I have because I had a lot of fans like that because obviously art is commerce and if there's no one buying what you had to do, then, you know, art can't be made to be a living. So it's like, it's like he's almost trying to like duel himself, but there's also the side of him that aggressively is like, no, I hate these people. I think they're weirdos. I think they're loners. I think that, you know, but it's like Travolta's performance is much more sympathetic. I think Travolta has a lot more sympathy for the character because he really just seems like someone who can't really help how he is. And he seems like he just, his obsessions are so you know manifested. I don't know. It's like, I don't know. I don't know what this movie's trying to say at all. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't, I don't understand. Like I feel the emotions, but I don't think that they match at all. This kind of galaxy brained freshman thesis of, <laughs> you know, pop culture and fan. Yeah. It's just like, it's trying to like make these big wipes mm-hmm. it's so many grand ideas but the emotions that drive them are so acute and so focused that like they don't ever match up and uh, yeah. i think that there is definite problem for this film of trying to be so much at once yeah and it's like i do applaud john travolta through all of this and all the negative things i'm assuredly going to say after this um for at least committing to the part in a way that He's like fully invested in this. I'm pretty sure he method acted when he was on set. Like, I'm not just making, I'm not assuming that. I think I heard that, that he was like method acting and he considers this like one of his like favorite filmmaking experiences. And wow. he's been promoting the film more than his usual films, like probably the most since Gotti, ironically. Um, like, as far as like he, like, I, I mean, he's just, I'll just say it outright. I think he's kind of a weird dude. Like, mm-hmm. I think he's kind of has a weird perception of reality. And life, and in some ways I sympathize with them. In some ways I'm kind of put off by him. And for better or for worse, I do think he channels that 
into Moose, the character of Moose. But and I do think there is something to the idea of like a celebrity playing a fan. Like I, I like obviously I'm sure John Travolta, you know, similar to Fred Durst, has met his fair share of very weird and eccentric fans who have, you know, probably gone to extra or extreme measures to try to get to know him. And I think having, you know, two uh celebrities with like kind of contradicting viewpoints of fandom and excessive fandom could have been very intriguing in a better film. But I think the main issue with both this film and John Travolta's performance is that he ultimately turns Moose into a caricature. I think mm-hmm. like, I think as far as like, we're saying like if he is outright saying that um, Moose is basically supposed to be on the spectrum, then like, this is very obviously a stereotypical uh broad in a bad way type of performance of somebody who is on the spectrum. And I say that as someone who is on the spectrum, like I think that this performance, like it, it does not do any justice as far as like bringing this into a positive light. Like you said, Fred Durst's um, portrayal, of this seems to be very spiteful and very uh, cynical and critical of his fans and seemingly a very specific type of fan who doesn't really understand social boundaries in a way that, it can be, you know, potentially harmful to his well-being and his family's well-being. And it's just like, I, I, if there was a good film in here, there would have been a lot more nuance, a lot more layers, probably a lot more stripped down and maybe willing to be a little more specific about what it's saying. But yeah, it's just because it's so muddled and because George Volta's performance is more willing to be broad in a way that feels insulting uh, it, it just becomes an absolute total mess of a film as far as its thesis and just basically its presentation in general. Yeah, and it's it's strange. Like I think it's the performance aggravated me because, like you say, he's trying to take a very delicate type of performance, and you know we've seen performances over the years where people try to deal with you know those who have you know mental handicaps or have situations that, you know, portraying people with socially awkward tendencies and things that are out of their control organically. And like, I don't want to say this is like simple Jack from Tropic Thunder, which is the ultimate parody of Mm. a performance like that. When an actor just completely overcommits to a role like that and it just becomes borderline offensive. Yeah. Basically no self-awareness what you're. Yeah, exactly. It's like, there's just no understanding of what the performance is and what it's doing and what it's portraying. And it just backfires on it. So tremendously to the point where it's just a hot mess. And what's interesting to me is like, he has like a whole foundation that's dedicated to helping children with special needs. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, his son, his late son was um, special needs as well. Yeah. He was autistic. Yeah. And it's like, it's like he has deep understanding. I think of what these issues are, which to me is just makes this performance just misfiring. Absolutely. Even stranger. Yeah. Like, I don't understand like how we got here, but I think also it just kind of portends to the, grander thesis and again john travolta has a tremendous career behind him like this is an actor that is a bit like al pacino like mm-hmm. pacino's done some pretty good stuff recently but obviously pacino hit a point in his career and i think de niro did to an extent where they just stopped doing good movies and i think all actors have a point where they just their streak ends it's like a musician like obviously you're just you kind of get to the point where you're playing the hits and you're not really innovating or finding new ways to act and you can always turn it back on in a way and i don't think revolt is at all done but 
I think he's kind of entered the wane of his career. Like he's not really in demand as much. Like he's really not everything he books. Like Gotti was a, just a very noted fiasco last year. Like, I mean, I feel like at the point right now, it's like he is very prone to bad performances because I think he's just not on his game right now. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like Nicholas Cage has absolutely been there, but then he does a film like Mandy and gives one of the de facto best performances last year. I mean, it was just ravishing and emotional and violent and fascinating. Like, I think Travolta could do that, but I think that he just has this problem that a lot of actors do. You just don't pick good roles. You just, you don't have that system in place to be able to field stuff. Or I think the most likely situation is you think this stuff is good and interesting and it's just not your taste is out of line. And I think that with Travolta, like, I think he thinks this is a good movie. I think he thinks he did a really good job. And I think that maybe in his mind, this is a performance that honors, you know, the situation at hand, which is, you know, it's not my place to judge how he wants to perceive his work. I mean, everyone has a right to be proud of what they do, but I mean, it's just, it is a horrific performance. And because I like him as an actor and I think he's had a really good career. Like, I'm glad that this isn't like blowing up like Gotti did. Cause I mean, Gotti was a, embarrassing moment because people mm-hmm. really talked about that it had a big theatrical release everything involved with movie pass and being involved with it like there was a lot of people looking at that movie and seeing how dreadful it was and mm-hmm. i think that the fanatic seems to have kind of creeped behind the couch a little bit and i'd say it's for the best because if this got out like the room did or something like i think this would be like a legendarily terrible midnight mm-hmm. experience like i mean you could literally pop this thing on for a crowd of you know people at midnight who are half awake and just looking to jeer whatever and you could rip it to shreds it's a it's a movie to be thrown to the hyenas in a certain way and you know i hate that for certain actors but then again people like travolta probably aren't as connected into the social sphere where they have to even see a lot of that yeah i mean i do wonder like you're saying if there is going to be a cult following for this film because i could totally see it i mean there is a definite reality um and we might it might be grown already where i could see this kind of being like a absolute madhouse for like bad film clubs where it's just like you know like as bad as some of Travolta's other movies were he just makes so many choices in this film that are just baffling and absurd and sometimes you know just gleefully silly in a way that you know like I, I if I didn't watch this with some of my good friends like I would be way more mad about it than I ultimately was but <laughs> I mean I will say that like because I watched it with some good buddies and we were laughing at it and, you know, just like pointing out the absurdities of it a lot that it was a lot more palatable than I think it would have otherwise been. And I, I hope that if people are going to enjoy this film, that they are able to find satisfaction in that way, because obviously, like we're saying there, it, it's very hard to find the merits in this film as far as like what it's trying to do. Like the best you can really say is like there, there might've been an interesting idea, but the intentions seem to be very, very flawed at best. And I think with Fred Durst, like it's safe to say that I think his intentions were honestly probably pretty bad. Like I think he went into this movie with bad faith. And um, I think a lot of the choices that uh, John Travolta made with the character just made his ideas worse. And I think it's clear that John Travolta probably did a lot of improv with this movie and a mm-hmm. lot of his improvisations, uh, including a random and uh, very bizarre tangent about nosebleeds. That are just mm. like that. I think that's going to be like a room type moment that you're talking about, where it's just like when that moment comes on, you're just like, oh, that's a nosebleed. That's a nosebleed. And then, like, that's <laughs> going to be like quoted and stuff. And, um, like, I could see that moment being, uh, and then several others in this movie just being like total laugh riots. But 
yeah, it just I, I I don't know what to really make of this film as a whole. And I, I think there is something to be said that, you know, th- this movie hasn't exactly left me like I'm still thinking about it. We're having mm-hmm. a, you know, probably hour long discussion about this film. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I even though the film is terrible, I guess it did something right if we're able to have this much conversation about it. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't think your room comments are on. I, I think I think they're totally valid is what I'm trying to say is like they there there are a lot of choices in here, like similar to that film. Like I was saying, like it it, teen, it tends to never find its balance between camp and pseudo seriousness and its performance, its lead performance is just totally absurd and filled with like seemingly like every wrong choice at every corner, like every decision I think John Travolta makes in this film is the bad one or a wrong one. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't think he like ever makes a choice in here that is like good, but I do think you're right. As you're saying earlier that like there are brief moments in this film and ironically or fittingly, they often happen on that like sunset strip. Cause there's a point later in the film involving fans and um, John Travolta's character where it's like, that was like the movement to me, like kind of like what you were talking about earlier, where it was like, for like like two minutes, I'm like, I can see where this film could have gone somewhere interesting and somewhere a little more thematically interesting as far as his commentary. And then it just completely dissolves. And I think that's a, that's because the film itself, it just never is focused. It's never concise about what it's saying. And it, it just leaves so many questions and we'll never get any answers. No. And are we ready for spoilers? Yeah, I was going to say, I think we, I kind of teed off into the spoilers. Um, mm-hmm. But before we get into that, why don't we just uh, finish up our final thoughts? And yep. then, um, yeah, we'll go right headfirst in the spoilers. So go ahead with your final yeah. thoughts on the film. I mean, it's a bad movie. Like, I think it's objection objectionably terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's, there's a reason it has like seven production companies and are distributed by something I've never heard of. And it's just, it's a very low budget kind of schlocky you know it's made three thousand dollars at the box office like i mean it's just an absolute failure of a project but it's you know it's like this is not a big this is like on the spectrum of movies like this and joker like we're about to go into a month-long plus multi-month long nightmare fuel run of conversation around uh batman movie and that's fine. I'm looking forward to seeing Joker, but like to me, that movie is like, oh boy, like there's probably going to be as much as I'm actually looking forward to it and think mm-hmm. it actually be pretty Same good. Here. Like, yeah, there's there's gonna be some gas fires with it and mm. grease fire and just messy stuff. And that's like, I can I get more frustrated at stuff like that than I do like the fanatic. Like, I mean, no one cares about this. Like, it's just it's yeah. an unimportant blip on the radar. If you find it and if the right people find it, I think it will maybe take some life, but I've thought that about some movies in the past that haven't. I mean, you know, it's kind of, it's always been redundant to say cult movie. Cause it's like, you can't really say a movie is a cult movie right. until it like finds the people that make it cult in the first place. I think it has cult potential, mm-hmm. but you know, obviously it just has to fall into the interesting hands. And, you know, I think that it's a movie that Durst will never embrace as such. I think to him, this is a serious work of art and, I think to Travolta, it's a serious work. So you're never really going to have people playing around with it. Like Tommy Wiseau eventually has with the room and uh, Greg Sestro definitely has like, 
this is just not a movie I think that even will make that leap because there's just going to be such a resistance from the creatives to like even send it out to midnight movies. Like uh, they, they can just not send the prints or send the, not the prints anymore, but the digital copy. I mean, if they really want to bury it, but it seems like kind of a movie that's already in the graveyard, like it's virtually disappeared. It was funny on Twitter a little bit on, you know, qu- hashtag film Twitter, uh, when the pictures were coming out of Travolta and I'm certainly not upset about watching it because I thought it was a, deeply odd movie that definitely was interesting and it, it's a niche if you're into movies like this and you're a movie fan and you just kind of like these oddball curio films and obviously travolta is a legacy actor so there is a big reason to watch this if you're just blithely curious about it like yeah there's definitely things at play but for the most part no i think this movie is a just just bad and it's just not a movie that I I really enjoy talking about it, yeah. uh, but I enjoy the conversation a lot more than the than the process. Even though I will say it had some moments I thought were pretty pretty funny. We can talk about sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll I'll echo a lot of what you're saying. I think for better for worse, it's a bad movie of 2019. Like it feels very much like the type of bad movies I expect to come out now. And at the same time, it also feels like a film of no time. Like it just feels like. Uh, an idea that's extremely dated. Um, it has a lot of like uh, old style filmmaking and kind of old fashioned slock style that seems to have, I, I, like you said, like kind of felt more appropriate in the late nineties or maybe at the earliest, the late two thousands. And now it's just kind of an even more of an oddity because it's just like, we're, we, we kind of move past this, I hope uh, in a broader sense. But um, yeah, I mean, if you want to look at it, like as a potential cult film on the level of the room, like I will say that it's not quite as technically incompetent as the room. Like, mm-hmm. like that's the thing. Like it's beyond just the like bizarre lead performance. Like it doesn't have that much in common with the room. And I think the like spitefulness and the just, I mean, outright mean spiritedness of the film, I think is going to repel more people than, uh, endear people like i think there's only so much you can appreciate about john travolta's performance on an ironic level before you kind of just you kind of get grossed out with what the film is saying and how it proceeds people on the spectrum um and elsewhere or elsewise um so yeah i i can't say i really recommend this film uh unless you just really love uh a, a truly uh huge uh dumpster fire of film uh, and you just like, you, you, you know, you're like a moth to a light. You just have to go right <laughs> to it. Uh, otherwise I would, you know, like I, there's no like critical merit to this film. Uh, I love, like you said, I love discussing the film. Um, I love breaking down its absurdities, but, uh, I don't think there's really much to be valued with this film. It just feels like a missed opportunity at most. Um, it just feels like a pache of other better character studies that I've mentioned, you know, like, uh, I, I, I would much rather people watch the King of comedy or big fan or misery or several other films of this vein that, uh, accomplish what this film is trying to do in a much better way. Uh, so yeah, with that, um, I don't know. Do you want to grade the film or do you, would you rather be ungraded? I'd say it's a, that's a D minus. It's not oh, okay. quite an F. Like I still think that there are, you know, to me, if a movie's an F, it's like I wanted to turn it off. And I never wanted to turn this movie off. So yeah. I would say it's definitely bad enough. Like, 
just from a just a logistical standpoint, like I mean, just from the way that it it doesn't go anywhere, and there's just nothing about it that's good. But it's like it's an interesting movie, and it's like it's like listening to someone scream on a street corner, a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff. Like it's just like I'm kind of interested in what he has to say, but it's from a yeah. pure place of just like being interested in bad things. Like mm-hmm. it's just like I'm I'm here for the schlock value. I'm not really here to you know really hear you out or anything. Like there's yeah. no. There's a very there's a very stark discrepancy for the why the movie was made and why I watched it. Yeah, I think that's a perfect metaphor for this film. Um, I'm going to give it a D plus just because, like you said, I think it is like the ravings of a madman on Hollywood Boulevard. And, uh, you know, like even though it's not saying anything direct and its thoughts are contradicting it's itself themselves, um, you know, it's definitely you, you can't take your eyes off the screen like it just Anytime John Travolta is on there, it, it it is a very charismatic performance in the wrong sense. Like you just like it, it it makes every bad decision, but you just can't stop watching it because it's just like, what's he gonna do next? <laughs> like, <laughs> like what what decision is he gonna go with now? Um, but yeah, it's like you know at the same time, like you said, it's a person like if it's a Raven's little madman that's hard to stop watching, but you want to be like hundred feet away at most like you you're or at least i mean like you, you just don't want to like be anywhere near this movie because it is like it's like a gross mean-spirited film and it you is. just don't want to be in its vibe at all because it's just like you know it's it it's not pleasant it's very uh mm-hmm. it's it's a very seedy gross disgusting kind of film but uh as far as dumpster fires go it, it's certainly an intriguing one as i think we've made pretty clear so uh yeah with that um if you're still listening, uh, we're going to go into spoilers um, starting now. All right. Time to spoil you. Oh, so where do you want to begin with spoilers? Okay. So can we just talk about his character for a second? Because we've not really dealt yeah. with that yet. With Moose? So, yeah. yeah. So Moose, for his day job or night job or however yeah. you want to say it, is a Hollywood street performer. And he's basically doing, I don't know, like a... British constable, I guess would be the best way to say that. Like an old timey, yeah, like one of those like old police, like like a stereotype of like a like British cop, like something you'd see like on like I don't know, like like um, what's that show? Is it Benny Hill? Yeah, uh, something like that. yeah, like where they do like the like like the type of cop that'd be running with like the little stick, yeah, or like in the <laughs> cartoons, like like that kind of like cop, mm-hmm. like that's like that takes the dogs to pound or something, like um. <laughs> Yeah, the it's bad just, guy from Lady in the Tramp. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's like, like that's like what he's doing. Like even having like a fake handlebar mustache on top of his beard, uh, for no discernible reason. Um, <laughs> and he's like going around like Jack the Ripper, Jack the Ripper. Uh, and yeah, it's just like I don't, I don't know if that's supposed to mean that he's like more out of touch with um hollywood but it just seems like like <laughs> like i don't like i i, I want i want to know like what the origin is between this costume choice uh, <laughs> yeah and, and yeah. how did durst direct him during this like i mean was it supposed to be bad and funny or like was he like legitimately like supposed to be like all right I need you be do your most convincing british cop oh no i think it's to- i think he's supposed to be a bad british accent Okay, because if it's like it's like all right, this is great. This reminds me of what I saw in Britain. It's like uh, I don't know if you no, ever I, that. yeah, it's just that <laughs> I think it's like I, I think it's like a winking kind of thing where it's like he's he's supposed to be bad at his job, yeah, and he's supposed to be like out of touch with people. But I just don't get like 
I, how does it lead to this? <laughs> like, like, why not like, like a like out of date horror character or like a movie character that's like from like a bygone era, like something that would make more sense to like the themes of the film? Because he dresses up as Jason Voorhees later, in right? The movie. Yeah, so like that would make more sense. Like if he's like mm-hmm. going around as Jason Voorhees and like you know like he was scaring away customers or like. You know, like people like didn't get it or like were off put by him. Like that would make more sense to what the th- the film is saying. But I just don't get like, how did he get to the British constable? <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is a thing you should do by like the Sherlock Holmes address in London. Like, yeah, that makes sense for people that want to dress like a police officer or something. Yeah, in London, but like you're in the middle of Hollywood, and it's like it's dumb. It's a dumb, crazy decision. But it's not like this movie knew any better. I mean, it's like. But it made it more, a little more palatable when those scenes would come up because they were kind of funny. It's <laughs> just from like a "what are you doing" type of way. Right. Like, they definitely spiced up the film. It did. It definitely did. And then this is a movie that needed a little bit of spice because it really was hard to swallow at times. Uh, yeah. So, um, anything else in particular? Spoilers, or is it just the end that you want to discuss? Besides that, well, there's a whole scene where basically Moose breaks in to a party. He breaks into the party and like has an awkward conversation with um, an actress or two actresses. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it shows his social limitations, but it's also like I don't know what was what was he telling them like, uh, like I've seen all your movies or something. Yeah, it was like he was just doing that. And he kind of laid the scene, but I don't know. It's just like every time Moose does something in this movie it makes no sense. But to me, the worst stuff is when he like actually goes to Dunbar's house and he kills somebody. Yeah, accidentally. Like, but Accidentally, still. yeah. So he like he tries to deliver a letter in the backyard, and I'll never forget that <laughs> it's that scene that's going around on yeah. Twitter. If you've seen it, yeah, and we were talking bas- about it, yeah. And like he like pushes her into a bird bath, and and she just, remember he just looks at her and he's like talking like, "Oh, I don't know what's going on." And then the camera just looks at her, and she is just de- dead as a door now. Yeah, like and yeah, dead eyes, just like yeah, and it's just. I understand that, like, the film is trying to portray someone who's obviously under mental duress, but you have to think even he would figure out at that point, like, okay, this person is is dead. Like, they're not coming back from this. And I mean, he's a, yeah, that's, yeah, sorry, you, you go ahead. I'll, I'll finish after. No, it's like, but then he just, like, goes into the house and is just like, walking around, like, all right, like, okay. I'm just, I don't know. It's like he doesn't understand that he just murdered somebody. And it's right. Just, like, that's the thing. It's like, uh, like that's what makes this film so insulting is that like like you know like anyone would know that she's dead like yeah. if, if there was some like if it was like something with the horror movies where he thought that she wasn't really dead but like his whole thing is like oh you got a nosebleed it's like obviously anyone who's not <laughs> two years old would know she's not just having a nosebleed like it's like it's just a incredibly insulting and baffling decision from either an improv or a screenwriting standpoint i don't know if it was uh john travolta's decision or or fred durst or who who was behind that but it was just yeah a terrible terrible decision and then there's a whole stuff where he like walks through the house and he's basically like using hunter dunbar's toothbrush and it's almost like something out of home alone i mean it's just it's yeah. just really whimsical and it's like you almost feel like there's like a the score kind of levies up and he's just having this big time and then he somehow managed to like, still be there yeah. going under his kid get home. And I don't know. I think you're one of your favorite parts of the movie comes after that. Yeah. Where he, um, or, 
well, well, Hunter Dunbar is asleep, and I guess he like sleeps like a doorknob because he uh, doesn't hear Moose crawling around his house, <laughs> or he tries to take a selfie with him while he's sleeping, and the phone <laughs> uh, drops on his lap, and he just like whoa, and he just goes back to sleep. And then at one point, he like gently <laughs> goes up to his forehead, caresses it, and then gives it a little swooch, like, and it's just like, what? <laughs> it's like with the gentleness of the kiss from Snow White, the seven dwarves. Right. It's just like, <laughs> what? And he just kisses him. Yeah. Just, like, good night, <laughs> sweet prince. <laughs> good night, sweet prince. <laughs> It's horrendous. It's just it's so like like oh yeah, and it's like like is that supposed to be funny? Like I don't like I also don't know like half the scenes in here. I'm like I don't know if they're supposed to be funny or not. <laughs> no, I don't even think the movie understands. Like maybe it's like oh look how weird he is. He's like walking around. It's like obviously it's bizarre behavior, but right like it's supposed to be played- like disturbing. Like am I supposed <laughs> to be like oh wow like like look how much like intimacy there is like how like. Like it's nothing sacred, and it's just like, come here, buddy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's like almost amicable. Yeah, like Hunter's like, oh, you like, <laughs> like it, the way it's framed, the tone is just yeah, bizarre. Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I mean, maybe you know, like it, this film tonally is just like a complete uh, tightrope, and like mm. this movie just falls off the ledge, like second one <laughs> so yeah, it's like it, it it doesn't have that balance uh, to say the least but i don't know like maybe a better film could have done that in a way that's really creepy unsettling like maybe like i don't know if you ever seen uh chuck and buck Mm-mm. okay well that's a film that um mike white wrote and um it's you know like that's a film where it's like about a friendship that's like really unsettling and it's also darkly comedic um and that like that film really gets that the tone of that film like perfect. Uh and it's also credit to Mike White's performance in that. But yeah, this film just like doesn't get that tone right at all. <laughs> oh no. I mean, yeah. I think when you referenced Big Fan earlier, which is a movie I really, really, really do oh, love. Great. Like, yeah. I, I, I think it's just the way better version of the story of what happens when fandom goes too far and that film has just way more empathy for the fan in the situation and it like, you know, obviously it condones them yeah. for his actions but it I doesn't almost, yeah sorry go ahead no i just feel like this movie is just the worst version of that story possible yeah i mean something i was thinking about was like do you think he like had this idea like in 2008 and then big fan came out and he's like oh shoot like i gotta <laughs> put this on the back burner because it's very similar to that film oh and yeah then, totally is. and then like when he finally makes the film it's like he just completely lost sight of what he was initially trying to say and like what the tone was to the point where just like, I don't know, like that's maybe one theory for what happened. I'd have to talk to him, but I don't know. I mean, he'd probably be like, the film speaks for itself. <laughs> what are you, what are you asking well, me for? Like, it's almost Durst like miss the obvious, like, I mean, it's a, it's a, obviously it's a kitsch in these movies. Like it's with every single movie in this situation has, but it's like, it almost would have been better if it had just let Moose live in his mom's basement. Like if that's where, cause that's what the King of comedy does. That's what yeah. big fan does. Like, and obviously it's kind of the, it is. And, and Joker is living with his mom. Yeah. Like there's almost like, this, it at least makes know, sense. Yeah. It's like the stunted development thing where you're still kind of living out your childhood fantasies and like, they've kind of turned into something almost kind of, morally repugnant because it's like you not letting go is almost your own personal decision not to be willing to let go of certain things and like 
there's just such interesting stuff, especially with like the incel community beginning to rise in you know socio political realm, and that now that word is going to come up a lot when Joker comes out because of all the ramifications that's going to have. Like it's almost like that Durst just didn't understand his character at all and just wrote his character as he saw them with his own situation. And I think that this movie would have been like ten times, well, not ten times better, but just a little bit better if it had just been from Dunbar's point of view. I think that was the intent originally, I have to imagine. Yeah, I could totally see that. And I think what happened is he just got so interested in this Moose character that he's like, I'm going to suppress this from his point of view. Like, maybe I'm not being, maybe I'm being a little too aggressive here, even though I'm going to literally blow the dude's hand and fingers off. Right. And stab him in the eye at the end. Like, we can talk about that now. Yeah, which, like, again, like, that's what I'm talking about uh, earlier, like, I don't know, like, what is that, like, supposed to be, like, cathartic way he does that? Or is it, like, horrifying? Or, like, I don't know, like, like, am I supposed to feel bad for Moose? Like, I don't know, like, what the intended emotion of that scene is. No, because, like, basically, if you've listening to this, you probably have watched this movie right now. Or Or you just don't care. Yeah, (laughs) you're just like, look, I'm not an hour into this. I might as well stick around for the end. Right. Like, basically, Moose, like, kind of snaps and goes into his house and ties up Dunbar and is, like, holding him hostage. And you never really clear exactly what Moose wants. And then the further you get in, you just realize that Moose is just completely in over his head and he has no idea himself. And the only way he knows how to get out of the situation is just to keep Dunbar there. And then, like, Dunbar, like, sweet talks him and apologizes and kind of does the typical, I'm going to say something to get you off my back and then flip at the last second. And Mm -hmm. he basically gets out of it and, like, that scene to me actually, there's this just deeply pathetic moment where uh, Moose dresses up like Jason Voorhees and then pretends to stab Hunter Dunbar and he's like messing with him. But it's almost like that's the only moment to me in this whole movie that you feel any emotional pathos for Moose because it's like you really do begin to realize this guy is just completely in over his head. He has no idea what he's doing. It's like, you know, he's kind of he's yeah. stumbled into this terrible situation. And like, there's like a half second where you're like, I kind of feel bad for that guy. And then you kind of go back to not feeling bad for the guy at all. Well, it's like, oh. Yeah. I mean, I think the Jason Voorhees moment is like one of the intended darkly comedic moments. Yeah. I think. But it doesn't really, like, like you said, it's like more sad than funny. Mm-hmm. So, like, like, when a movie wants to be funny, it's sad. <laughs> yeah. And then when it wants to be like dark and brooding, it's hilarious. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's just. They didn't match the X's and O's at all. Yeah. And I guess eventually Hunter and Moose begin to struggle and Moose is like pushing him back. And basically he takes a gun and blows off Moose's hand, his fingers. Yeah, his hand, I think. Yeah, he's like, he basically takes a buckshot to his hand and just, and they're all gone. And then basically he also stabs him in the eye. It's yeah. a very violent scene for a movie that really doesn't have a lot of that. Right. You know, it's kind of like a, this movie's weird version of like the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood finale. It's yeah. just like, you know, it's this explosion of right. violence. And yeah. it's like done over top way that's like, I don't know if that's supposed to be cathartic or not. Like, I don't know, like, I generally don't know, like, is it just like mm-hmm. violent to be like more explosive and like more shocking? Or is it just like, we're like supposed to like feel like, oh, finally, like this guy is, you know, taken down, like he's getting his justice, which feels way grosser. Then, yeah, yeah, but I don't know. Like, I generally don't know, like, what like the intended emotion of this scene is. I think the way they play it, it's supposed to be triumphant, but it's like the way it happens. Moose is like writhing on the ground, and he's scared. And I really feel like this film presents, or it doesn't present this, but I think it. You can read the idea that if 
Now, Moose did murder somebody like an hour before this happened. So obviously he is a dangerous individual, but I think that in reality, if this happens, like, I don't know if Moose actually carries inherent danger, but I think the way the film like accidentally frames it is that really he overreacts and he just needs to kind of tell him to leave. And I don't know. It's just, but it's like, it's a violent moment that really is kind of played like Moose is the bad guy. I think this is the moment where you do understand that this film is trying to villainize him. Because, like, this doesn't have, this movie is not morally complex enough to the point where, you know, it can be like, we're both guys are at fault. Because the ending to me is really self loathing. It's really kind right. of a pity party. Because it really, it's just, it's, it's almost like diaper whining. Like, it just feels like, cause, I don't know if we want to go ahead and say it, but he basically, like, gets framed for the murder of his housekeeper. Yeah. And, and like, the other him. housekeeper, like, yeah. says he killed him because he, like didn't get to listen to music or something like yeah <laughs> that part is it, it comes out of nowhere too it's like the police show up to his house and you're just like you know in any normal legal situation he's at the they don't arrest him he comes in to talk for like an hour he probably has a really strong alibi for the time of right. death and then it moves on with his life and they realize that the guy who just held him hostage begins to get hunt down yeah not to mention that like moose is walking down the street like, he has a plausible alib- like he has a plausible like case because like yeah. there are like hundreds of witnesses who have seen this guy with one hand like blood <laughs> sporting out of his face. Uh, like, there's all the ropes in the bedroom, right? And, like the, the the gunshot in the house, <laughs> like, I mean, it's, uh, the blood that's everywhere. <laughs> like you can tell something has happened here, right? And it's like it matches the description of what happened. Like, yeah, you can just like just go on social media. And it's like look at this sick dude like killer costume and it's just like <laughs> oh that's the guy that was in your house right he's like yeah it's him it's like, okay and uh, i think what the film tries to do is like re- kind of it tries to have like the sick twisted ending of like the world or it reminds me of that gif from the office where michael scott it's like looks out the window and says this city like he's like brooding and he's trying to be really serious in a moment that just completely falls flat it's like yeah. it tries to do like the twist ending of showing like Hunter never had. It's like it's trying to pity this guy. Like, look what happened to him. Now he's gonna die for what he's something he didn't do. And now Moose is gonna be a celebrity. And this is what all these people. Are. It's whiny. It's just like that old man yells at Cloud thing mm-hmm. from The Simpsons. Like it's just, it's just, it's 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 just really whiny. And it's just it kind of makes the movie even worse because it's like okay, obviously this is not what would happen in real life. Like Hunter yeah. is still in a gigantic position of privilege and. Very often do people who are in those positions even face mild repercussions. And obviously, if they're innocent, there's going to be no repercussions in the first place. Like, wrongful imprisonment never really happens with people in privileged positions. It's just like... And then Moose is like, oh, he's going to be a big star. And I was like, well, you just blew the dude's eye out. Like, I don't really know if, like... It's to be a pirate. Yeah, exactly. Which they don't show us, which may be even more (laughs) mad. Like, if you're going to tease John Travolta the pirate... (laughs) <laughs> Show us John Travolta the pirate. Like it's not that That's hard. Right. <laughs> no, we're going for like more Johnny. Is he going to do like Jack Sparrow? We're going to be more like Tim Curry and Muppeters Rollin. Uh, I mean, <laughs> considering his last costume was like a constable from what, like the 1890s. I- I'm yeah. pretty sure his pirate interpretation is going to be as stereotypical as possible. Just like, yeah. ahoy, be- mateys. Yeah, he has like a little stuck parrot on yeah. his shoulder. So, I mean, and I guess the hook, because he doesn't have a hand now, like, and obviously, if Moose's hand gets shot up, he would die from the bleeding. Like, he, oh, yeah. If he was, yeah, like, 
the the science like that it's just bad i mean this movie you just begin to understand that there was so much thought put into it that there was no thought put into it like there was just so much that they tried to do and say that they didn't really even grapple with reality and it just kind of falls apart yeah i mean the only thing i like about the ending is i like that like i said there's like that split moment where he's like walking down the street and like you know he's like you know obviously like just like uh decap like his hands like gone his eyes gone like people are like oh you know like oh this this like cool costume and it's like kind of dumb but like it's also an intriguing mm-hmm. moment where it's just like you know like like in a better film that could have been like a kind of powerful thing mm-hmm. but it, it it lends itself to maybe a better film like you, you almost get a glimpse of maybe something that could have been kind of interesting there but yeah it just goes back to being completely stupid again <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that's the problem with this movie it's like the second it mildly has something good to do it just completely reverts and it goes right back to like just not being what it needs to be at all yeah um i feel like there's something else i wanted to bring up but uh, it's escaped me at the moment was there anything else that you wanted to talk about with with the fanatic? I think like there was another really bad scene. I mean, it's obviously this movie is just a string of bad scenes altogether. But right. one of the aspects that was also really bad to me was like he had like this feud with these street performers, and one of them is Bill Paxton's son. Oh yeah. So yeah, James Paxton, because mm-hmm. the movie is dedicated to Bill Paxton's memory, which uh-huh. made no sense to me at all at first. I was like, wait, what? Because I mean, obviously Bill Paxton was a great actor who was you know of since course, yeah. but like this kid is in it. Um, James Paxton, who has been on the USA drama eyewitness, which I've never heard of, but um, I've never heard of it either, but yeah, he plays Luke, Lucas Waldenbeck on eyewitness, which also for him. Yeah. Julianne Nicholson is on there and Gil Bellows from Shawshank Redemption. So, (laughs) um, quite a murderer's row of talent. And Catherine Hardwick directed the pilot and it only lasted for one season. Who directed the pilot? Catherine Hardwick. Uh, that sounds familiar. Is that Twilight? Uh, Twilight, yeah. yeah. And then Rob Lieberman was also a director on it, and he directed uh, D three, The Mighty Ducks. Oh, okay. So yeah, so that's so, interesting. Yeah, it was a short lived. Uh, it was just a catastrophe that it didn't so early. But no, I, that that whole subplot to me, the acting was so bad, and that's just it reminded me of the room a lot. Like, honestly, because the confrontation in the bathroom, then you had the cop that was like, all right, you kids, you get out of here. You leave Moose alone. And it's just, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. that scene where he, like, it's, like, getting built up, like, his <laughs> mm-hmm. pent-up rage, and he, like, chokes. I'm assuming, so, Bill Paxton kid's the, like, like um, Chris Angel-esque magician, right? You're talking about that does, like, extreme stunts in the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it's just, like, he has, like, it's a pent of rage and he like chokes them like just that moments before like he the way he like builds up the scene is like as if mm. he's just gonna like turn into the incredible hulk yeah <laughs> not like <laughs> not like he's like finally snapped mm-hmm. like the way he's like oh, oh. <laughs> but then like he has like this like incredibly dumb line where it's just like supposed to be like chilling yeah. i guess where it's like i hope you're head gets <laughs> torn off and it rolls down yeah. the street and everyone watches <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting him to be like, you like that. What's his name from uh, Anchorman? Like you, you, you poo poo head, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you, you poop mouth. Suit, the toilet store. <laughs> oh, oh, that's yeah, that's a good point. I was thinking of um after he like does oh, the yeah, thing. Yeah, where he's like, yeah, your, your, your poop mouth. <laughs> Some poop out your mouth. 
Garth, please don't cry, Garth. Yeah. <laughs> if I give you $20 out of my wallet, will you feel better? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and don't forget Serial Man. Oh, oh, my favorite character. How could I forget about him? <laughs> yeah, um, if anyone happens to be listening to this who hasn't seen The Fanatic, uh, <laughs> I would highly recommend, it. if you can, during this, like, uh, fax Chris Angel scene where uh, Bill Paxson's son, like, is doing, like, this extreme stunt to steal people's wallets, there is ex- inexplicably a character named Serial Man who is, like, painted... Like uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Like he 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 has like this like kind of like clay thing on his head, and <laughs> yeah. he looks like a rejected like um where are those characters like uh um like the Dracula one and then like Boo Berry <laughs> like the monster cereal right. That looks like he like was like a reject from one of those, <laughs> and then like. He like fell into a portal into the real world. He's like, where am I? <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't go well. But it's just like, yeah, it's, it's like, I don't know how I'm supposed to focus on anything else when Serial <laughs> Man is in the background. Like, what's his story? The funny thing to me is like, they were just like shooting down there for free and it just like took who was yeah. ever available right. in Hollywood. And this guy who just dresses up as Serial Man was like, well, I'm here. And Durst is like, that's who I want. I want cereal man. <laughs> Give me cereal man. Give me cereal man. It's like him looking like I want you to be cereal man. But um, my favorite line in the film is when uh, Moose gets mad at Hunter Dunbar and calls him Mister Dummy Bar. That oh. was uh, a very inspired moment of. Mm. Uh, and then when he screams at him, that, or no, he screams at the girl that he gets mad at, who's like the narrator that you're blocked from my social media. <laughs> oh. That was the thing. Uh, Hunter, we didn't even talk about this. Um, Moose apparently has like a large social media following. And I feel like that was also like some really dumb commentary. You tried to say like these Twitter people, they only yeah. care about social media and following. I mean, it's it's like another thing that like if the movie was more interesting and more willing to be contemporary, that would have been interesting. But it just feels like a half assed like, eh, like what's something that's going on now? Like he mm-hmm. whatever. He's big on Instagram. <laughs> like Fred Durst, like having no real awareness of like what's going on on social media. Yeah. No, it's just, it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's about like the dangers of fandom. And, you know, it's like, I guess they're trying to be like these fans on social media and don't, and it's like, oh, they're only, it's just, it's just, it's just another bullet point in this just bizarre thesis paper of. Yeah. Nonsense. I mean, this movie is it's nonsense. I think that's the best way to put it. It's just, it's just, it's absolute nonsense. Right. Yeah. I think we've basically <laughs> drained the we've, well here. Uh, yeah. The only, have. the only two things I was going to bring up were the film starts with a quote from Hunter Dunsbar, <laughs> who, if you haven't figured out by now, is a fictional character created for the <laughs> film. Uh, that was beautiful. Um, and, uh, if it's not his first line, then at least his second line from Moose is, uh, what, you remember what it is exactly? Um, I think it's like, I can't talk. I got to poo. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. He just, he just says to the, to the guy in the comic book shop that he just has to take a dump like in the middle yeah. of the movie. And that's how you're supposed to be like, oh, he's quirky. Like that's like supposed to be the moment that it's just like, no, like nobody says that. Yeah. But what is this? fascinating and I just because this movie would have this the, one of the producers 
is named Bill Kenwright, who I just thought was one of those random people that just like has money in LA and has never gotten a chance to produce a movie. And it's like, oh, I'll give you money for this. He is a member of the British, the Order of the British Empire, and is a legendary West End theater producer who also is the chairman of the Everton Football Club, which is a major professional football team uh, in Liverpool, England. So, what? I couldn't tell you. It's just another thing about this movie that that raises so many questions. Yeah, like this movie has a member of the British uh, Empire order, like a like a guy that's literally been knighted. So, um, as he's been rewarded for his contributions to the arts and sciences, works in charitable welfare organizations, and it was established on June fourth, nineteen seventeen, by King George the fifth. Uh, who later would see, uh, <laughs> 102 years later, a member of his most excellent order of the British Empire produced the film The Fanatic. Yeah, I was going to say, like, there's like a <laughs> amendment. It's just like, upon evaluation of the motion picture The Fanatic, we have rescinded this man's... <laughs> He's no longer a member of yeah. the order of the British Empire. <laughs> I mean, is that like maybe this movie will play really well in London yeah. or England or something? Like when asked for comment, he said, <laughs> "I have no time. I've got to poo." That's right. All I wanted was an autograph. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, what a weird, what a weird thing that is. Yeah, uh, man. He, he and Fred Durst must be friends. That's... I guess, yeah, or maybe him and Travolta are friends. I uh, may, yeah, that'd probably make a lot more sense. This guy is like a legitimate, like, pillar of the. He's one of the UK's most successful theater producers. <laughs> like, mm. maybe he's, uh, maybe he's a Scientologist as well. He could be. No, that, I haven't even thought about that possibility. But um, he's also an actor mm. who, I guess, it didn't really work out. I guess he's not really that yeah. good. An actor. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, you don't wind up in the fanatic by accident. Yeah, he um. Yeah, he's not a person I would expect would be involved with this director Redbox uh, production. Who Redbox was one of the people that helped produce this, apparently. So oh, that's yeah. the second movie that they've done with Travolta that's been an absolute bomb. Uh, Trading Paint was what was the first one. Uh, Gotti. Oh, they. I thought that was Movie Pass. Yeah, Movie Pass. What did I say? Uh, Redbox. Redbox. Oh wait, no, it really. It was either Redbox or Movie Pass. I think maybe it was Redbox, but this movie has seven production companies: Daniel yeah. Gronick Productions, Bill Kenwright Films, of course, Fig Production Group, Media France Capital, Oscar Generale Productions, Pretzel Fang Productions, and the Wonderful Media Corporation. <laughs> Just absurd. <laughs> That's gotta be the worst name for a production company I've ever. Was it again? The Wonderful Media Corporation. Like wonderful? Is that like what it's supposed? To... I guess Wonder Film yeah. Media Corporation. Just, if that's what you have to name your media corporation, like you're not really going to be up there with Amblin. And then it was distributed by Quiver Distribution, obviously. Uh, well, the legacy studios like RKO and. Mm. Warner Brothers and oh my gosh this yeah. movie was so bad and we have somehow almost spent an hour and a half talking about it like we're at a minute we're, we're at 80 minutes now yeah we're we're almost there um 
I think that's as good a place any wrap it up unless you have more to say. I uh, would just say also you wouldn't guess it, but most of this film I think was shot in Birmingham, Alabama. Oh really? Yeah, my guess is all of the stuff with Hunter Dunbar's house they probably filmed out of L.A. because it was probably so expensive, and they just filmed all the uh, like Hollywood and Highland Park scenes. It looks like hmm. in location, but it's just so expensive to shoot there. So yeah. it's like, I guess that this movie probably didn't have the world's grandest production budget, but yeah, Bill Kenwright saw something in it. So I guess if if you get <laughs> Bill Kenwright money, you really are uh, you're playing with the house. I guess so. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, you're probably right, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if like only the um Hollywood Boulevard scenes were shot in Hollywood and the rest was <laughs> and obviously all those like exterior landscape shots that they have, but um yeah, the rest of it I could see being outsourced to uh other states and cities. Yeah, apparently it just uh wasn't meant to be for our friend the fanatic. Yeah. Oh Moose. But, Should have still well, been just called Moose. That was the original title if you didn't know. Uh, I'm, I'm talking to listeners, obviously. Uh, yeah, but um, I guess we have to say good night, sweet prince, to this yeah. film. Yeah, give, give it, it a kiss on the give it a little kiss on the forehead. <laughs> Did it adieu. No. Yeah. Oh man. All right. Well, that's been the fanatic. Uh, watch your don't. I would probably advise don't. But if you think there's something here that's worth your eight bucks and uh, an hour and a half your time, then I guess by all means, it's a, it's a free world, I guess. So this podcast is almost as long as the movie is. So if you really yeah, want right. a three hour, <laughs> finale, yeah, if you made it this long, it made it this far. I mean, why not? <laughs> and th- this might be the definitive podcast that's been done about the fanatic too. Uh, we'll see. I don't know. I definitely think a lot of bad movie podcasts are going to cover this. Yeah, one. I can see that. But what if like Fred Durst listened to this and like uh, then we become like the inspiration of the like, fanatic, fanatic too? <laughs> Moose comes <laughs> after us. Yeah, Moose pirate Moose. Yeah. Well, we finally get to see Pirate Moose. So yeah, yeah that's right. It's like. Moose starts a podcast. It's like trying to free Hunter Dunbar. <laughs> it's like a uh, true crime podcast. With his hook hand. He doesn't know how to use a computer. <laughs> no. Like Hunter breaks out of jail. Get revenge. Uh. <laughs> I really wanted this movie with to end with Moose getting hit by one of those star buses. Because to me, that would have been the ultimate, like, trying to, like, end the movie on a big note. Uh, that's too clever, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that was too <laughs> yeah oh. i don't know man but uh yeah so i've been will i'm Corey, and thanks for listening everybody i'll see you guys on the main show until then have a good one guys see you in the movies <laughs>